we have a special guest to open us in prayer this morning. I'm so glad that Pastor Sam could be here. Father in heaven, I, I'm so pleased as I look across this um, body of women and see the amazing competencies, giftedness that you've pulled together all in one room at one time, people born in different cities in different decades, and here they are gathered to learn of you, and I'm asking that you would make it possible for them to see through Job and see you, God Almighty, the one who made them. And I do believe that because of what Jesus did on the cross, you will never love these women any less or more. Your love for them is fixed. And though you are the God who gives and you're the God who takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord who loves us consistently. Herein is love that you sent your Son to die for us while we were yet sinners. Faithful love, unfluctuating love for these women. And I'm asking that they would sense it, lean into it, rest into it, and they would feel your grip upon them in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Sam. All right. This morning, I want to show you some connections to James, first of all, and then we're going to have a brief overview of Job in three parts, and then we're going to dive into Job 1 and 2. And so my hope and my desire for this study of Job is written on the front cover of your workbook. Do you see that? Steadfast through suffering, and I want you to see the steadfastness of Job, certainly. I want to, I want to have you see the benefit, the blessedness of remaining steadfast, but I also want you to see God in this book. I want you to say at the end of this study with Job, I have heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eye sees you. I want you to see the purpose of the Lord in that, that we heard about in James. Remember, he said, see how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So I want you to truly see God and trust him even when life is hard. This study will not answer every question you have. It might even raise more questions. But this year we have been pondering the steadfastness of God toward us, that he holds us fast in every season and every circumstance. So standing steadfast under trial being steadfast through suffering is proof that we love and trust him. And we get a glimpse of that in these first two chapters of Job. Now, James is one of the books of the New Testament that explicitly refers to Job. And some commentators think that the book of James is a, is a reflection on the book of Job. Do you remember how James opened up? Count it all joy. Right When you meet trials of various kinds, and Job certainly did meet a lot of trials, didn't he? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive what? The crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And then James 5.11 that we've mentioned already. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. 
You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So what does it mean to consider those like Job, who remains steadfast. If we back up one verse to James 5.10, we read, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. So should we read the book of Job and see him as a moral example of endurance? Should our takeaway of this study be live like Job, act like Job, Learn how and how not to respond to suffering like Job. Be steadfast like him. Well, the New Testament authors do identify moral examples in Old Testament characters. That's part of what we're going to learn. Like, don't grumble like the wilderness generation. And don't be like Cain who hated and murdered his brother. Walk by faith like that great cloud of witnesses who have gone before us. But what else are we to see about Job? We're to see that God has a purpose in Job's suffering. We're to see God in Job. To see that purpose, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And the New Testament authors also teach us how to see Jesus in the Old Testament. Asking how the characters point to Jesus, how they build our faith and direct us in wisdom. And so in this study, we are going to intentionally watch for how the author of Job, reveals who God is and how Job foreshadows Jesus. Martin Luther put it this way, we can only read the Bible forwards, but we have to understand it backwards. Now, Jesus talked about this forward-backward kind of reading of the word in Luke 24 when he taught his disciples on the road to Emmaus how everything written about him in the Old Testament, the law, of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, was about him and would be fulfilled in him, especially his death and his resurrection. Some of you might remember a radio program that began during the Second World War, which told stories on a variety of subjects. And in this program, the host would share little-known or long-forgotten facts, and he always held back some key element to the very end at which time he would conclude, and now you know the rest of the story, right? Well, today we get to learn the rest of the story that Job and his wife and his friends didn't know. They didn't have that glimpse. So number one, we know what the Lord says about Job. I'm so grateful that we get the insider scoop in these first two chapters, which are the focus today. These key elements are so important for us to remember throughout our study of Job. How many of you read a mystery novel by jumping to the very last page and reading the last paragraph? Probably you don't, right? Actually, I had a whole table of women last night that raised their hand and said that's the way they read mystery novels. But normally in our Bible studies here at the North Church, we start at verse 1 of chapter 1 and we work our way through a, a book of the Bible in an expository way. We don't jump all the way to the end. But in this case, it's really important for us to go to the end. So spoiler alert, 
In the case of Job, it's crucial for us to remember and see what the Lord's verdict is on the poetic speeches that make up a large portion of this book. So context and conclusion. These are two very important things to keep in mind through this study. What the Lord says about Job and his friends. And so in chapter 1, verse 8, we read, The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And then fast forward to chapter 42, verse 7. We see the other bookend here. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So these are the two bookends that you need to remember now in our study of Job. And now I'm going to do just a flyover of Job in three parts so that you can kind of keep in your mind these three simple parts of Job. Number one is like the prologue, and then we have the dialogue, and then we have the epilogue. Another way to look at it is in we have the dilemma, we have the debate, and we have deliverance. Okay, Just easy three-part way to remember Job. So part one answers the question that we have today. Who is Job? And how was his life shattered by suffering? And you might have noticed that this whole section is prose. We haven't gotten to the poetry yet. And in part one, the challenge is whether we and Job can accept that our understanding, that our wisdom is limited, especially when it comes to spiritual things, even though they do affect our lives. We have to come to terms with the fact that we may never know the reasons for our suffering. So my main idea, a takeaway today, is when we don't understand God's ways, trust his sovereign wisdom, his goodness, his love, and his mercy. So Babby Mason wrote a song called Trust His Heart, which she based on Romans 8.28. All things work for our good, though sometimes we don't see how they could. Struggles that break our hearts in two sometimes blind us to the truth. Our Father knows what's best for us. His ways are not our own. So when your pathway grows dim and you just don't see him, remember, you are never alone. God is too wise to be mistaken. God is too good to be unkind. So when you don't understand, when you don't see his plan, when you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. That's my prayer for you through the study of Job, that you would trust the Lord. So part two of this book is the main chunk of Job. So what is said in all the speeches? It's sometimes hard to understand because it's all poetry. And Job is either the speaker or he's the listener in all of them. So in part two, what we need to remember is that the poetry and the dialogue is humans trying to figure out the answers to the hard why questions. And then they offer their reasoning, but their reasoning is faulty. And God tells us this in Job 42. They say some true things, but they misapply it very badly. The challenge in this section is to pray for God's wisdom as we relate to them 
and we relate to our fellow sufferers as well. So the book concludes, part three, in prose again, and it's very short. And in part three, our challenge is to fear God and to draw near to him in our suffering, and that God is the only source of our true wisdom. So on your handout, you see a gray box with an overview of Job 1 and 2. And that's where I'm going to go for the rest of our time this morning. So I'd like for you to open up your Bibles or your Job scripture journals, because we're going to walk through this, and I'm not going to read every verse, but I'm going to refer to those verses. So in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, we get a glimpse of Job's character. We see his circumstances, his family, his, his, uh, his wealth, his business, all of that. So let's see what we can learn about this man, Job. Verse 1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. Now, it's not Oz, so you don't follow the yellow brick road there, okay? But this is probably the land of Edom, which... The main point for you to learn is maybe not where it is geographically, but that it's not Israel. Okay, Job is not a Hebrew. Okay, uh, this is not the promised land. This isn't Canaan. So scholars are divided on when exactly the book of Job was written. And you can hear Dr. Chris Rata's explanation of that if you listen to that on the podcast. But Job was a real man, probably living around the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he knew God and he trusted God. So in verse 1, we learn four important things about Job and his character. That he was blameless and upright. He feared God. He turned away from evil. So as you saw in your lesson, blameless does not mean that Job was perfect or sinless, but he was genuine. He was a man of integrity. He was the real deal. He wasn't a hypocrite pretending to be something that he was not. And this is really key for us to remember throughout the study. Job has no outstanding, glaring faults. He's, he's not a huge failure. This doesn't mean that he was sinless, though, so remember that. He was upright, and this refers to the way he treated others. He dealt honestly. He was a trustworthy man. He also feared God. He had a reverence for God. He bowed before him in humility and awe. He was a devout believer, genuine in his faith. He turned away from evil. That is, he had a daily habit of repentance, turning away from sinful thoughts and words and actions. And in Ezekiel, we find the Lord referring to Job's righteousness in the same sentence with Noah and Daniel. And then Hebrews 11.7 clarifies that this righteousness is by faith. Right? Noah became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith, Hebrews tells us. So Job's righteousness and ours both are by faith alone. It's not by his righteous acts that he performs that earns salvation. So in summary, Job was a strong believer. He trusted God. He was a pretty amazing guy. There's no reason that Job should be punished. And then we, we go on and we learn this later now. In verse 2, we learn about his family, that he had seven sons and three daughters. Job was a very blessed father. He was also a successful businessman. Job's reputation was known all over. He was both godly and wealthy. And then in verses 4 and 5, we learn of his spiritual posture. Evidently, this close-knit family really enjoyed being together. 
They loved one another. And Job's integrity and character had an impact on his family and on his kids. He was deeply concerned about their faith and their spiritual health. And so he offered sacrifices, dedicating them to God, serving as a priest to his family. He was zealous for the honor of God's name. He cared so deeply for his kids. And in verse 6, we see a scene change. The curtain rises, and we get a glimpse, a rare glimpse, into the unseen, hidden world above. We're introduced to two more central characters now in the book of Job, Satan and the Lord. And we're going to see how Job responds to these catastrophes. This is Job's first test. So what is happening here? Well, this is like a heavenly court gathering or a cabinet meeting where the angels and Satan present themselves to the Lord. And this seems really strange to us, doesn't it? Let me read it. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. So who is Satan? Satan is a rebellious fallen angel. Revelation 12 describes him as the great dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil, the accuser. He's a primary character in the book of Job. He is the fiendish one, one commentator said, who displays his accusing nature in an attempt to pit God against Job and Job against God. Now, the sons of God here are angelic beings. God does govern the world through supernatural powers greater than us humans, but they're not greater than God. We see these angels referred to in Job 38. When God was laying the foundation of the earth, the angels were there shouting for joy. Now, we also see the Lord introduced here in this section. And it might surprise us that it is God who initiates the conversation, almost as if he is bragging about Job. In Job 1.8, the Lord asks Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Now here we see God saying the very same thing that the narrator said. So this is important for us to remember. God draws attention to Job. He says, my servant. Now this is a title of honor and respect. And it seems that the Lord really, really loves Job and is delighted that Job serves him. He uses the same description, but he adds that there is no one like him. John Piper wrote, I rule out the possibility that God is a bumbler. God never says, whoops. That leaves us with one possibility. He is setting Job up for trouble. He is manifestly proud of Job. Job's fear of God has endeared God to Job in a very deep way. And now we have Satan making his accusation in verses 9 through 11. He says, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to his face. So Satan thinks that when Job's blessing bubble pops, he will surely curse God. That Job only loves God because of his gifts. He's essentially accusing God 
of buying Job's worship and shielding him from suffering, saying, you've surrounded him with a hedge of blessing. You pay Job to love and serve you. So the question comes up then, does Job love his family more than God? Does he love his health more than God? Does he love his stuff more than God? Is, if everything is taken away and all Job has left is God, will he curse God or will he love God? So Satan thought that when the blessing stopped, Job would not treasure God. Surely he would no longer fear God. So let's read on. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has in, is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So the Lord gives Satan permission to test Job. He gives him a boundary, though. He is sovereign over Satan, and he sets his limits. Satan could not touch him without God's permission. So this brings us to another central question in the book. Does Job treasure God for no reason except his stuff? Why does Job trust God? Why does he love him? What is happening here? When Job doesn't understand God's ways, will he trust his sovereign wisdom, goodness, love, and mercy? So now we come to disasters. Job is shattered by suffering. We see the Sabaeans come in. We see the fire of God that might be lightning. We see the Chaldeans come and attack. And we also see a great wind or like tornado. And remember, God said, all that he has is in your hands, he said to Satan. And now all that Job has is gone. Job had lost everything except for his life and his wife. And she will soon turn against him. So another big question we should have in our minds is, who was ultimately doing this? Two of the tragedies were caused by evil men right? The Sabaeans and the Chaldeans. And two were caused by what insurance companies call acts of God. But everywhere in the Bible, who controls the lightning and the wind? It's God. So when Satan came into the presence of God, it was God who initiated. He gave Satan the permission. So God knows, and we know that God is absolutely sovereign. There is nothing outside of God's control. What will be Job's response? Will he remain steadfast? Will he trust his sovereign wisdom, goodness, love, and mercy? Let's see how Job responds. In verse 20, he tore his robe and he shaved his head and he fell on the ground and he worshiped. Now, tearing his robe is an expression of grief symbolizing that his heart was torn here. And his response is humility. And he worships in his grief. He does not curse God as Satan had predicted. And then Job continued. And note specifically how he saw the hand of God. He says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Don't you just say, wow? Wow. He offers praise and worship in his grief. What trust and acceptance of God's will. It was the Lord who gave, and it was the Lord who took away. And so Job 1 closes with a summary from the narrator, here the author, 
In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Job spoke rightly. Job spoke truth. He had a high view of God's sovereignty, and he did not charge God with wrong by saying that it was the Lord who took away. Job's suffering was not because of sin, and he does not respond in anger, though, but in worship. This is amazing. Now we come to test number two. Chapter two. We see Satan again here. That's the same heavenly setting. The Lord repeats Job's character, but he adds something else. Did you notice that? He still holds fast his integrity. Right? And God says, although you incited me against Job. So God says he is behind these calamities. Satan can't do anything anything without the Lord's permission. And now Satan comes with his accusations again. He answered the Lord and he said, skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to his face. So what is the accusation here? God has not allowed Satan to touch Job where it really hurts. He's again questioning Job's motive for fearing God. And he predicts that he will curse God. So again, the Lord said to Satan, this is verse six, behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So again, he gives permission, but he also sets limits. This reminds me of, and this is, you had this verse in your lesson this week, when Jesus talked to Peter on the night that Peter denied Jesus, and he said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Isn't that a beautiful picture? that Jesus prays for Peter and he prays for us. Hebrews tells us that he is ever living and interceding for us before the throne of God. Sisters, we can take great comfort in that. Jesus is praying for us in our suffering. So in chapter 2 now, verse 7 through 13, we see more of the affliction that Job is facing. He is enduring great physical pain. He has these loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, and he takes broken pottery to scrape himself. Job was sitting in humility. And what is noticeable is that he is still not cursing God, as Satan thought. Job is also enduring some foolish advice from his wife. She was grieving, too. She had lost everything. She had lost all of her children, her home. And now her husband was wretchedly afflicted. Imagine the hopelessness that she felt. But she gave some terribly sinful advice to her husband. Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Matthew Henry wrote that if Satan leaves anything that he has permission to take away, it is with a design of mischief. Satan was attacking Job further through his wife. Look at how Job responds to his wife. He says, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God 
and not receive evil? Notice that Job does not call his wife a fool, but that she was speaking as a fool. It sounds to me like maybe her advice was a little bit out of character for her. That's just me, though. The Bible tells us now explicitly, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. When Job doesn't understand God's ways, he still trusts in God's sovereign wisdom, his goodness, his love, and his mercy. And now Job is approached by his friends. Evidently, the sores and the disfigurement that came from Job's illness kept his friends from even recognizing him and led to their grief that they showed in ways that were common to their culture, like throwing dust over their heads signified them identifying with the dead. We don't know why they didn't speak to him for seven days. It might have been tradition, uh, but apparently they waited for him to speak first, for it would have been very much in bad taste for them to speak first. They seem very committed to him, and they demonstrate their friendship by coming and sitting in silence. And at this point, they too have not sinned with their lips. They are about to, though, in chapters ahead. Okay, so what have we learned about Satan and the Lord? We have learned that the Lord is completely sovereign. Satan is accountable to God. God knows Satan's thoughts. Satan is the accuser of the righteous. Satan knows what's going on in the world and in the lives of individuals, although there's no evidence in the Bible that he can read people's minds. He has great power over individuals and nature, but his power is subject to the sovereign supremacy and authority of God. Satan is not omnipresent, meaning he can't be everywhere at once. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. He is not omnipotent. He is not all-powerful. Satan can do nothing without God's permission, and God's permission includes limitations on him. Satan is on a leash. When we don't understand God's ways, trust his sovereign wisdom, his goodness, his love, and his mercy. Jesus is faithful, and he is steadfast when we walk through the storms of life. When we go through trials, we discover what kind of a faith we really have. Trials reveal our faith, and they also strengthen our faith and our Christ-like character. As we mature, we gain a greater confidence in the kindness of God's heart and the goodness of his loving providence. Why can we rejoice in trials? Because even in those times that are darkest in our lives, we know that God is still in control. Nothing is outside of his control. His divine purposes will come to pass. So my hope and desire for this study of Job is that you will see the steadfastness of Job, and the purpose of the Lord, you will see the blessing of remaining steadfast, but that you also see the Lord as Job did, that you will come to the end of the study and you will say, I have seen more of God in this study. See how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Above all, I really want you to trust him as you've come to see him. Trust him when life is hard. The book of Job is so relevant for us. Job's suffering seems to come out of nowhere and seems to have no connection to his character. 
Like Job, we never understand the reasons for our sufferings. My prayer is that this study will help us all as we live with suffering, not just to ignore it, not just to grin and bear it, not just to say, a saying when I was younger was, oh, just praise the Lord anyway. Um, that's not our attitude. Our attitude is trusting the Lord, fearing the Lord, trusting in his sovereign goodness. Questions about suffering and evil and loss have puzzled people for thousands of years. And over the centuries, countless people have asked why a good and sovereign God would allow bad things to happen to good people. In fact, as Dr. Chris told us in his introduction on Saturday, in our postmodern age, the issue is one that has convinced many to walk away from their faith, to assume that there is no God. Some of you may have family members or friends who have walked away over this very issue. The natural assumption is that if God allows suffering and evil, but he is all good, then he's not powerful enough to stop evil. Or if he is all-powerful and he doesn't stop evil, then he can't be all-good. Can God be both all-good and all-powerful? The book of Job is not going to answer all the why questions, but we will learn how Job endured steadfastly when his life was shattered by suffering, especially in the face of accusations that he deserved what he got. Even though now, as we've learned in the prologue, remember what the Lord stated about Job, right? That there is none like him. He was a righteous man. So you've heard that question. Why do bad things happen to good people? R.C. Sproul famously said that he could answer that question in just two words. You don't. You don't. Ultimately, or they don't. Bad things don't happen to people, good people, because the Bible makes it clear that there is none righteous. No, not one. There are no good people. But we have one good and perfect Savior, Jesus. And ultimately, the book of Job points to the sufferings of Jesus, our suffering servant, who went to the cross on our behalf, the perfectly good and righteous for us, the unrighteous, to bring us to God. Job helps us to realize that the reason why people suffer is known only to God, but that God can be trusted, even when we cannot understand all of his ways. Some of you may be in the midst of a very difficult season of suffering. If so, my prayer is that you will taste the sweetness of God's sovereign, sustaining grace for you in the worst of times. And I want to call your attention to some of the resources that I, that I listed on the front of your handout. Because we have resources for you at the North Church. We want you to be able to pray with your sisters who can come alongside you in your suffering. And so I've asked some members of our prayer team, our counseling team, and some of our Bible study committee to be here who would be willing to pray with you after class. So I'm going to ask them to raise their hand, and you can look around, those that are willing to pray for you after class, okay? Because I know that sometimes this study of Job is really hard. It might bring up for you things that are very difficult, and I want you to be able to pray and to receive counseling that you need, all right? My prayer is that your pain does not cause you to be bitter in your soul, but to put your hand over your mouth 
and to trust God. He will never permit anything in our lives that is not for our good and for his glory. He does not need to explain his ways. We live by his promises, don't we? We trust in his promises, not in his explanations for our suffering. God will keep you. God will hold you fast. In Jeremiah 32, he promised that he will love you with all his heart and all his soul. No matter what afflictions we faced, God is still for us. The pain in our lives cannot alter God's steadfast, unfailing love. Job lost everything but his wife and his life, and then he dealt with the bitterness of his wife, and later we're going to see that he endured the horrible counsel of unsympathetic friends. But Job didn't know the full story. He didn't know the rest of the story. But in the end, he will testify, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. I'm going to close with a poem that John Piper wrote about God's sustaining grace, and it is printed in your workbook. You can read it later if you'd like. This has encouraged me so greatly over the years. What is sustaining grace? Not grace to bar what is not bliss, nor flight from all distress, but this, the grace that orders our trouble and pain, and then in the darkness is there to sustain. However long the sorrows last, this mighty grace will hold you fast. Would you pray with me as we close? But the Lord is faithful. God, I thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you for your promise that you will establish us, you will guard us against the evil one. And Lord, we had confidence in you that you are doing and will do the things that you need to do in our lives. We trust in your goodness your love, your wisdom, and your mercy. And Lord, I pray that you would direct our hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Jesus. Would you help us to see you in Job and to remain steadfast in suffering because you are faithful and you are steadfast. Give us hearts that say, even through tears, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.